Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good. <laughs> well, that was a grand and glorious greeting. And we just had a flyover. <clears throat> I called it in special, kind of like the Super Bowl, you know. Uh, do you have your Bibles with you today? I hope so. We use them. And we're going to dig into them today, so get those out. Some of you have electronic devices, that's fine. You can access the scripture that way as well. If you are trying to uh, find the uh, Wi-Fi connection, you can point your device there. And if you need the password, it is Centralia Church, all lowercase, all one word. And I invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of Acts this morning. And as you're doing that, you can get, get your core guide out. There's devotionals on the inside, the discussion guide for our groups that launch uh, this week um, already. I'm excited about that. Uh, and then a nice blank spot on the front for you to fill in with all sorts of notes to talk uh, to your core group about questions you might have, things you might want to discuss. One of the things you might want to discuss is this hot, pressing, very important question. How do you feel about movie sequels? Hmm? You might want to write that one down. So I'm going to give you 20 seconds to tell your neighbor a movie sequel that never should have been made. All right, so think about that for just a second. These are, these are movies that just we would be better off as a human society if they never were produced. So ready, set, go. Movie sequels that never should have made the big screen. Any, anybody care to share? What's that? Anchorman 2. Scream. How about um, Rocky Five? <laughs> I mean, how did we get to five? Home Alone one was good. Two, I thought was pretty good. Three and four, I mean, what? Who needs three and four Home Alone? There's all sorts of movies that you could put on this list that never, ever should have been made. My son likes Home Alone three, so that was a little, that was a little, uh. <laughs> I owe him a cup of coffee or something, maybe. The book of Acts does not, does not fit into that category. Right at the outset, Luke tells us that the book of Acts is a sequel to his first writing, which we call the Gospel of of Luke. I mean, right off the bat, we're in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Luke says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. 
He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So Luke is giving us a little summary, quick three-verse summary of his first writing in the Gospel of Luke. So clearly he lays this out as the continuation of Jesus' ministry. And if you remember the way, if you remember the way that Luke started out his gospel, he, he's the one who has the extended birth narratives of Jesus, but there's, there's, a, there's somebody who's there from the very beginning of Luke. It's important. When Gabriel appeared to Mary, he said, you're going to have a baby. It's going to be by the Holy Spirit. We get the first mention of the Holy Spirit early on in the Gospel of Luke. And then we go through the birth narratives and getting to Bethlehem and, and all of that that we've just covered over the previous weeks uh, in, in our Advent and Christmas season. We, we celebrate that. But then, you know, Jesus, he's a young one, he matures, and he, he launches out on his ministry. But before he does anything, before he preaches a sermon, before he heals anybody, before he starts gathering people around him to follow him, the disciples, Luke, Luke tells us that he went out to be baptized. The Jordan River, John the Baptist, beautiful scene. And Jesus was baptized and it says while he was praying, the skies opened up, right? The heavens parted and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. The Spirit character is one who empowers, who animates, who who Jesus fulfills his ministry through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and Luke is saying that my gospel told you that story about everything that Jesus began to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything he taught, everything he did was powered by the Holy Spirit. Now we get to the book of Acts, and Luke presents it to us as a continuation of everything that began. And when we get to the end of Acts, it's going to be like one of those stories that just, well, it just kind of tapers off. It, you know, it does have uh, an ending, Acts 28, but it's written in a way that suggests there should be an Acts 29 and 30, 31, and continuing on and on and on. And you know why that is? It's because we're invited to be part, to become part of the story. We're invited to enter into this. And, and, and when we learn about everything that Luke wants to share with us about the, the birth of the early church powered through the Holy Spirit, we get to the end of that, and he's like, it's, this is just the beginning, folks. It's going to carry on. And it has all the way to this very time and place. And it will continue on until Jesus returns. So it's presented to us as as a sequel, and we're going to work our way through the book of Acts in, in 2019, and I've, I've broken it out into three smaller segments, so we're, we're launching into the first one today. Uh, all of them are going to start off with the, the words true church, 
sometimes we wonder, what, is it, what does it mean to have a, a real church or, or a true church or an authentic church? What, is, what does that actually mean? Is we certainly see poor examples of what it means to be church. And I think to get our marching orders and to get it right, we go back into the scripture. And we go back to the instructions that Jesus left us about what it means to, to be a church. So the first one is true church, and it's called receiving power. So for the next several weeks, we'll be, be on that, and then we'll, later in the spring, we'll, we'll go into one that's true church going viral. Because the church was launched, and when we read about it in the book of Acts, it just kind of explodes onto the scene. It goes viral. And then when we come back in the fall, uh, every church, every church will face adversity. Every true church, every true church will face adversity because when we live with the kingdom values that we find in Scripture, it's going to put us at odds with culture. And when we're at odds with culture, there's going to be some adversity. And there's going to be persecution, and there's going to be suffering, and there's going to be people who demean you for your beliefs. And so we probably should address that when the true church faces adversity, maybe there's something to learn about how they faced it. So that, that's a little bit of uh, outlook on 2019. Um, I, I ask this question to people quite frequently because I'm, I'm just curious about what people think. And, and the question is, what do you need for a great church? I mean, what do you need for a great church? You, you need, uh, these are answers that I get. You need... You need good teaching and preaching. And if it's a 30-minute sermon, that would be fantastic. <laughs> I know, I know. That, that would be nice, wouldn't it? That's not my calling. <laughs> Take that up with God. <clears throat> uh, friendliness, a friendly church, is a mark of a great church. Um, nice chairs, you know, so kind of comfortable. Um, Prayer, That's, people mention prayer, people mention good music, coffee, not church coffee, like, like real stuff, coffee, good fellowship, uh, baptisms, Sunday school, small groups, children's ministry, youth group, uh, you know, if you keep talking to people, they come up with things like, well, missions is, is probably good, right? And, um, you know, we should have some, some service projects and things like that. And, you know, you talk to people long enough and you get a decent list going of things that, that make a great church. I find it interesting that, um, you know, we listed a whole bunch of, of good things right there. Uh, if you look around and you observe our culture, if you, um, if you look at what is celebrated and what is modeled, generally speaking in, in the church, uh, in North America specifically, uh, to, have a, to have a true church, a vibrant church, a growing church, you need everything that's on that list and you ought to do it to be the best at it in your community. That's what's, 
model. That's what's put out there. That's what's celebrated for us. And there's a whole industry that's been created to help churches fulfill that. If this is what we set out to be our mission. We get to our text this morning in, in these first three verses, three and a half verses. Luke touches on several of the things that were on our list. He says that after Jesus suffered and died and was resurrected, he spent 40 days with his disciples, with his followers. Could you imagine 40 days of FaceTime with Jesus in the flesh right here? Can you, can you imagine that? That would, that would be kind of neat, wouldn't it? Probably powerful. Um, might be a little scary. He might tell us some things that, <laughs> did you have to go there, Jesus? Really? But I think 40 days of FaceTime with Jesus, you know, that proof that he is alive and well, and on the throne, 40 days with Jesus would be fantastic. I know a lot of people who are struggling right now and brokenhearted and in need of physical healing, and to have Jesus here would, would just be incredible for them. According to Luke, that, that's good. It's good. But it's not enough. They need, they need something more. Uh, Luke tells us, that there was, during this 40 days, that, that they had Sunday school with Jesus. There was teaching. There was instruction. And, and Jesus told the disciples exactly what he wanted them to do. Clear orders. Those are, those are helpful, aren't they? When somebody's very clear with what they want you to do, it leaves no margin for error, no room for discussion. Okay, I know I'm supposed to do this. Forty days, Jesus taught them about what exactly he wanted them to do. That's good, right? Good Sunday school class. Luke says, it's not really enough. You need something, you need something more than that. Well, there were 40 days, and it says that there was preaching about the kingdom. So they, that there were times where Jesus preached his own word to them. How powerful and fantastic would that be? That's not a 30-minute sermon, folks. 40 days, Jesus was preaching with them. I mean, can you imagine Jesus telling them, yeah, I faced down death, and I, there I was in that tomb, dead, and then I just socked it to death. I took the sting right out of it, and here I am, folks. You know what that means? Forty days of preaching about God's kingdom coming into being. Luke says, hey, that's good. It's good stuff right there. It's not enough. You need, you need something more. Forty days. They had forty days of communion with Jesus, gathering around the table with him. Verse 4, I didn't read that one yet, but verse 4 starts off on one occasion while he was eating with them. He ate with them. 
They're in communion. Literally what Luke is saying there is they shared salt, which is a way of talking about fellowship around a meal. Life gets really personal and real, doesn't it? When people are in your kitchen, when people are in your dining room, when, when we put our feet underneath each other's tables, those are special times. Those are special moments when life becomes real and we can share with one another and break bread together. Forty days of communion with Jesus. Can you, can you imagine that? Having Jesus over for dinner? Luke says, that's, that's good. It's good. It's not, it's not enough. Those small groups that we have set up, it's, it's not quite good enough. We need more. And then there's just the thought that they had 40 days of prayer. 40 days of prayer. Do you know, you know what prayer is? It's talking to Jesus, talking to God, right? They got to pray face-to-face with Jesus. Words that we speak to Jesus is prayer. They had the opportunity when he was just right in front of them. 40 days of prayer, and Luke says, hmm, that's good. Fantastic even. Wonderful. Uplifting. Encouraging. Hmm, it's not quite enough. You, you need something more. They had all of these things. All, pretty much the things that were the most important things on the list that we came up with for things that make a great church, Luke checks them all off and says, yes, those are, those are very important. Those are, those are good. You, you need to do those things, but there's something else. There, there's more. You see, it might be good stuff, but if all the church is all, if all the church is about is doing these things to the very best of our ability, I think Luke is telling us you run into a control issue. Did you notice that everything on the list that we generated were things that we in some way could control? What's modeled for us in the larger church culture is that if we, if we control the environment in just the right way, that our church will grow. The onus is on us, if you read and watch. If we put on the best show, if we have the best worship, if we have the lights just right, and maybe a touch of fog here and there, and we sing all of the right and right songs, you know, that are on the top 100 list, if we do all of those things, your church will grow. That's what they tell us. If you have, you know, good small groups where there's awesome interaction and there's good preaching and there's a funny guy that tells a joke once in a while and, you know, kind of, you know, but what happens is preaching becomes motivational speaking. But these are, these are things that we can control if we just go with our list. 
And Luke says, no, you can't, you can't do that. He's having none of that. We can spend all of our time and energy on trying to have to engineer the perfect church. And you know what? We might think that we have some level of success because people will start showing up for that because that's what the American culture is tuned in on. What's in it for me? If we focus just on our list, Luke is saying, watch out, because it will, it's things you can control, and when that happens, then church becomes something that's a little bit self-serving. We show up to church because we think, oh, yes, this is going to be really good, and I'm going to go home with a nice message, and we're going to have this nice experience, and I'm going to feel all warm and fuzzy when I go. Luke says, uh-uh. That's not, that's not what it's about, folks. If we focus just on those things, Luke's saying that's not really the true church. It's not. We'd have a social club, and we would do nice things, and we would reach out and we would help people. And we would feel good when we left, but we wouldn't be considered a true church. Now look, look at what verses, um, starting in verse 4. One occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. He's saying, remember, I've talked about this before. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Be okay to say amen. Amen. All right. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Really? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I did hear an amen there. That's right. Amen. See, Luke is cautioning us from the beginning that some things that we think might be the true church are just... They're good things, but we get them twisted around and we make them self-serving and it, it misses the mark. And, and he, Luke lays it out for us. He, he tells us that Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not a surprise gift. He taught them about this before. If you flip back just a few pages uh, in your scriptures to the Gospel of John. So this is, 
This is the last words that, that Jesus spoke with his disciples. John chapter 14. Look at verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. Maybe we learn something from the spirit. What is right and good and true, the spirit will teach us. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. The Holy Spirit will live in us. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Have you ever felt all alone and afraid, maybe a little bit powerless? I wrote in the core guide this week about a time that I remember when I was a kid. I was at the grocery store with my mom. I might have been all of four years old. And we just happened to stroll down the aisle that had, you know, Grocery stores aren't known for having really good toys, but they have little trinket toys. But for a four-year-old, wow, that's cool stuff right there. And I got distracted by the toys on the shelf. And there I am, staring at them. Wow. And my mom went off. Kept shopping. I didn't notice. So there I was. Wow, this is a cool shrine. Uh, that one and that one. Hey, Mom, Mom, where did she go? There I was, alone, lost. I didn't know where she was. I went to the end of the aisle. I peered around. She wasn't there. Where did she go? I turn, I turn around. Maybe I'll go to the other end and try, and try this end of the aisle over here. And as I turn around, there was a, there was a boy, I mean, terrible, mean, menacing-looking kid. He might have been 10 years old. <laughs> I got afraid, because I was alone in this aisle with this big, burly kid. I think the disciples might have been feeling a little bit of that, as Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to go away. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Remember, they forgot that he said, I will be raised to new life again on the third day. They only heard the death part of that. And there they are, thinking, I'm going to be in the grocery store, lost and alone and afraid, and there's going to be terrible things coming at me. And Jesus says, don't worry. When I go, there will be an advocate. Somebody to lead you, to guide you, to comfort you, to bring you into all truth. I'm not going to leave you orphaned and alone and afraid. The Holy Spirit will be there with you all along. Same time that he's gathered with his disciples, just a few verses later. John 14, verse 26, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. Same conversation over in chapter 15, verse 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit is there to help us testify and be witnesses. Same conversation, chapter 16, verse 7, but very truly I tell you, 
It is for your good that I am going away. Now, wait a second. You're telling me that it would be a fair trade, Jesus for the Holy Spirit. You think about that? You theologians in the room will say, well, there's like the same thing, right? But think about it. Jesus says it would be better for me to go away and the Holy Spirit to be unleashed on this world. Think, think about that. Jesus was a human, fully God, fully man, but Jesus was in a body. And if you, this section over here, was spending time with Jesus this week, are we spending time with Jesus over here? If Jesus was still walking the face of this earth and Jesus was spending time with this group over here, he had a week-long seminar with this section. Are, are we participants of that seminar? No. We're not. But Jesus says, if I go, then the Holy Spirit shows up and everybody has access to God all the time. Amen. So Luke is telling us in these parting words, this, this parting scene where, where Jesus has the disciples and they're on the Mount of Olives and, and he's telling them this. He's reminding them the Holy Spirit's going to come and is going to give you power. And we've talked about this already. Remember I told you it would be better for me to go and for the Holy Spirit to come than for me to stay here with you. That would have blown their minds. Because in that moment, they could reach out and they could grab hold of Jesus. They could hold on to him. In some ways, maybe they thought that they could control him in some sort of way. And Jesus says, no, it's for your good that I go, because when I do, God will send the gift that he promised, which is the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus knew it was power. It was power that they needed. On their own, they were nothing. On their own, they were confused and dazed, and they didn't get it. We know the disciples. They needed to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Did you, did you read? Did you hear that part of that? What happens when you're baptized? You're totally immersed, right? I mean, you're, you go all in. There's some fear and trepidation with that being dunked completely underwater. I am all in right now. If we never go all in, then we'll never need to reach out and grab Jesus' hand. We'll, we'll never need to tap in to that power that the Holy Spirit brings us. Because if we don't go all in, then, then we can manage it on our own. Yeah, I can just pull myself up by my bootstraps and I can, I can do it on my own. Be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Remember the time in the Gospels, the disciples are out in the boat. They've gone on ahead. Jesus stayed back to pray. And Jesus comes strolling out on the water. Remember that one? 
Peter recognized, they thought it was a ghost at first. It's a ghost. We've got to be afraid. Peter recognizes, no, it's the Lord. And one of the ways that he knew for sure it was Jesus is he called out to Jesus and says, if it's you, call me out to you. See, Jesus calls us into water that's way over our head. One of the lies that Christians tend to believe is that God won't ever give you more than you can handle. <laughs> That's a lie. Jesus called Peter out of that boat into water that was way over his head, and it was stormy and windy. Peter couldn't do that on his own, could he? But he, he didn't even hesitate. He hopped right out of that boat, and there, there he was, focused on Jesus, and he's walking to him. Can you imagine how cool that would be? And the gospel writers tell us that Peter got distracted. He looked, he noticed the wind, he saw the wind and the waves, and he began, he began to sink. You see, he needed the power of God to help him there. We need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We need to get into all of this way over our heads because if we're not in way over our heads, then somehow, somewhere deep in the recesses of our mind, we're going to think that we can do this whole thing on our own. Leave God out of the party. We can grow this church. We just do all the right things and it's great. I can't do that. The power of the Holy Spirit, folks. Well, all of this that Jesus is telling him must have been a little bit intriguing. I love how verse 6 is worded, and it says, Then they gathered around him and asked him. Just the word gathered around him. It just seems like he's telling them this. And you know some people when they tell stories, you know, you, you just want to get your ear in closer. Like, what, what, what's going on? Tell, you know. And they, they just lean in a little bit closer. Okay, Jesus, what, tell us what's going on. They gathered around him. They, they leaned into him to hear what he had to say. I, I picture this in my mind, and maybe this is the moment that they finally have that light bulb come on and they understand. But then they open their mouth and ask a question. I mean, they've, they've gone through a whole lot in the previous weeks, haven't they? I mean, the guy they staked their whole life on was crucified, brutally murdered, and put in a tomb. And they fled in terror when that happened. And then all of a sudden, three days later, He's back. This is like an emotional roller coaster for them. Don't know what to think. Confused, not quite understanding all of the stuff that Jesus has been talking about, starting to connect some of those dots, the teachings of Jesus, the things that he said. You know, oh, wow, I, okay. It's starting to make a little bit of sense. It's, it's, maybe, it's, maybe it's all true. And their question kind of betrays their, their confusion. 
They're, they're, looking, they're looking to Jesus to make it all happen. What are you going to do next, Lord? What are, you, what are you going to do? The question is, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it, can we put up the flag? Can we just call this thing now? Is this the day? Is this the time that you're going to proclaim victory over the whole thing? And the, the short answer is yes, but not in the way that they wanted. There's, there's a problem with their use of their vocabulary in their question. Because they get, they get some words right, but they, maybe they're just not asking the right question. They, they didn't yet comprehend the kingdom of God. They still thought it was going to be this immediate change, this immediate victory, not this gradual expansion of the kingdom of God like Jesus had been practicing throughout his ministry. Jesus reached out to one person at a time. They still thought that this was a territorial, a politically driven kingdom. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, there's a border with a big wall all the way around Israel. And, okay, Lord, are you going to bring the kingdom back to Israel right now? But they didn't look beyond the border of Israel. They didn't connect the dots that Jesus said, this is for all people. All the way back to the beginning, promises to Abraham. I will use you to be a light to the nations. They're thinking in, their vision is way too small at this point. And they're still wrestling with this, this kingdom idea that just sounds so strange to them. I mean, Jesus had been teaching about this kingdom. The first will be last. What? The last will be first. How's that going to work? To be great, you must be a servant of all. Woe to the rich and the powerful. In this kingdom, the poor and the hungry and, and those who mourn are going to be blessed. They, they looked around the landscape of their culture and they're like, well, that doesn't, that just doesn't seem right. It's the rich and powerful who control everything. They're the ones who seem like they're blessed. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I, I don't understand that, Jesus. See, this strange-sounding kingdom, they hadn't come to grips with that. The, the, the way that Jesus talked about power and the way the world talks about power are two completely different things. They don't get it yet. Hmm. And Jesus, he sort of sidesteps the question. He's good at this. Uh, he gives them a little bit of an answer. He, he, he said to them, well, you know, it's not for you to know the times and the dates that the Father has set by his own authority. You know, that's kind of a, eh, it's not for you to know that. But, I got something for you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is telling them, Jesus makes a really important statement here. When he says you're going to be my witnesses, the word that's used right here is, is um, 
It's the word that might be translated uh, herald. And in those days, in the ancient times, a herald was somebody who went out announcing the good news that a new king was on the throne. So in the midst of insecurity in, in their country, in, in their setting, despite the fact that maybe the kings are going to tax us and maybe abuse power once in a while, it was better to have a king in place than to just have total anarchy. And so heralds were going out saying, hey, there's a new king on the throne, it's going to be okay. So for Jesus to tell them, you are going to receive power so that you can be my heralds, do you know what he's saying? A new king is on the throne. And you need to go be the herald announcing this good news far and wide, starting here in Jerusalem and going all the way to the ends of the earth. The beautiful thing in all this is Jesus knows that it's not something that we can do on our own. It's not something that we're going to muster up on our own. We might do okay for a little bit of time, but we're going to get tired we're going to get beat down. And we're going to run out of our own power. And he knows that we need the Holy Spirit to make it possible. There's one, there's one final uh, picture in this passage that shows the, the disconnect with Jesus and his first followers. Um, verse 9, after he said this, He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently. They were staring up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Would you look into the sky? Yeah, I would too. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day's walk from the city. Jesus is telling them all of this. I mean, imagine this. Picture this. We're a group, uh, at this time, it was probably a group of 100, 120 or so people gathered around him. He's telling them this. He he gives them these instructions. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. It's going to give you power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all the way to the ends of the earth. And as he's doing this, he just starts to levitate up into the sky. Maybe it's a partly cloudy day and he gets up so high and he disappears behind a cloud and that's it. Would you do that? It's okay to say yeah. (laughs) How did he do that? I've seen a lot of stuff, but man, he went away again. Peter, where'd he go? John, do you see him from your angle? And then, and then Luke says, all of a sudden there are these two guys dressed in white robes. 
who kind of tap him, hey, what are you, what are you guys looking at? <laughs> What's up there? The same Jesus who left is going to return in the same way. He's going to come back to earth. Think about that. That's a whole nother sermon. I'm really resisting hard not to preach it to you. Um, <clears throat> Jesus is coming back to earth, which means there's still work to be done here. Jesus is coming back to earth, so maybe it's not about just going to heaven when we die. There's value in God's creation. And the two guys in white remind him, hey, hey, Jesus is coming back, which means you should maybe follow his instructions. Go wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you and then go and be witnesses. Do the work that he gave you to do. They're standing there, kind of feet in concrete, immobilized, staring up at the sky, wondering when Jesus is going to give them the perfect church. You know, the one that does everything right. People always get along and there's never any fussing and fighting. They, they want that. And they want Jesus to give it to them. And so they're, oh, Jesus, do it for us. And these two guys say, no, it's your job. Remember? Remember what he just told you? Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit and then get out and be witnesses. Make disciples, like he said. And then next week we get into the part where the Holy Spirit shows up, but there's another, just at the, in the next section of, of Acts chapter 1, there, there's one more story that just completes the trifecta in in Acts 1, of the total uh, ineptitude of the disciples on their own power. So one, they have the wrong question. Two, they get stuck uh, just staring up at the sky, immobilized, waiting for Jesus to do it for them. And then the, the third one is, you know, you know, Judas had gone away. He took his own life because he had betrayed Jesus. And so now we are left with 11 disciples and, and they, they needed to fill jersey number 12, and so they were trying to figure out, okay, who gets this one? And it says that they had some candidates, they needed to be witnesses, narrowed it down to two, and then, and then Luke tells us that they pray about it. Apparently, praying about it didn't, didn't reward them with an answer quick enough, so they got out the dice to figure out who should fill jersey number 12? I mean, who brings dice to a prayer meeting? On their own, they don't get it. On their own, they're powerless. Stumbling around, asking the wrong questions, waiting for it to be done for them. Solving problems, taking it into their own hands, and in this case, even leaving it up to chance. I guess it's you, Matthias. Congratulations. I can't blame him, though. I can't blame him for being confused. 
that they've experienced a lot with Jesus. A little bit of a roller coaster in, in the last few weeks. And Jesus told a bunch of powerless guys from Galilee to wait for power in Jerusalem. Well, you know what, folks? It didn't go so well in Jerusalem recently. I'm not... Uh, they don't like us there. You want us, you want us to go back there? Jesus said, yeah, start in Jerusalem. And then be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. We got to cross the border into Samaria. They're just a bunch of half-breeds over there. I don't know if we can do that, Jesus. That's really pressing our boundaries. And even to the ends of the earth. No way, Jesus. Gentiles? Heathens? All right. Without the Holy Spirit, it doesn't make sense to them. They, they can't comprehend that. Jesus started by saying, go wait for the gift that God promised you, the Holy Spirit, that will bring you into all truth. He will remind you of all the things that I taught you. He, he will be there for you to, to help you get over these misgivings that you might have about being my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But they were stuck there, staring up at the sky, waiting for Jesus to make it happen. I wonder about us. I wonder about us. Hey, Acts 1, it starts off, it launches into a great, great story. This is a wonderful book active, imaginative. There's action all over the place as the church expands and grows and there's all sorts of questions and growing pains and, and things like that. But it really kind of socks you in the gut, too. Acts 1 is, it just puts the challenge right there before us because it's really easy for us to see the issues that the disciples had as the issues that, that we might have asking the wrong questions, waiting for things to be done for us. I'm going to pick a church because I, it checks off all the things on my list and they do it the best in town and so this must be the place, this must be the place for me because they'll do it for me. I can just show up and I'll leave feeling pretty good about myself. Or left staring at the sky Hey, Jesus, okay. I wonder if we forget that we have been placed on the earth. We have been brought into the kingdom of God to fulfill the mission that Jesus left for us. Have we let our desire to be served cloud uh, our vision of why the church exists in the first place. I, I've heard it said that God doesn't have a mission for his church. Did you hear that? God doesn't have a mission for his church necessarily. He has a mission, and he created the church 
to accomplish it. Mission before church. Sometimes we turn that around and we want fancy mission statements saying exactly what we're going to do. Maybe that's because we think those are things we can control. God had a mission for us to be witnesses to Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. He called us to go out and tell the story about how Jesus came to save people who were lost and struggling in their sin and brokenness. And without Jesus, there was no way to be saved and restored to God. To be a witness means to go out and to share that story, your own story with somebody. It's scary to be a witness. It's scary to go out and tell people about Jesus because it just seems like an awkward conversation for two people, and it, it, that's okay, but you're, you know what? Don't discount your testimony because you think you have to fill it with a bunch of fancy doctrines. That's called teaching. That'll come later. To be a witness is to tell a story is to share good news. Hey, you wouldn't believe what Jesus is doing in my life right now. When the person at school or in the office cubicle next to you notices that when something happens to you and before you would absolutely lose it and go ballistic, now you are more graceful and forgiving, people will notice that. Hey, why didn't you blast that guy? Let me tell you about what Jesus is doing in my life. Without him, that's who I was. But he came and entered into my life, and I have this thing called the Holy Spirit that lives in me to teach me and to guide me and to comfort me and to encourage me and to lead me so that when that sort of thing happens, I no longer act like I used to. I can live into a new reality. That's what being a witness is. Jesus tells us that we have to be activists, participants in his work. And he's given us everything that we need to have a true church. He's given us marching orders and a power supply. And those things will make all of it happen. And everything on our list, we can work at those, but only if they fall in line with the marching orders Jesus gave us and if they are powered by the Holy Spirit. Period. The work that Jesus has for us is right here. It's right now. It's in this place. It's in this town, in this county, in this section of our world, and it calls us to go even further beyond that. But it's right now and right here. And the beauty of all of this is that the beauty of all of this is that the Holy Spirit has already arrived. The Holy Spirit has already arrived. Amen. Amen. Would you stand for prayer?